up yesterday to beautify our place. If you notice, there's much mulch spread about the property and flowers and a number of things that have been done just to beautify the place here. And that was done strategically uh, with the idea that we would make this space more hospitable for your friends who might be open to joining you next Sunday, Easter Sunday. So I hope that you will be prayerfully considering inviting a neighbor or a family member uh, who's not a regular church person, who maybe doesn't know our Savior, to come next, next week. Carson will be telling the story of the resurrection beautifully, so pray about that and, and act as God leads you this week in regard to that. Um, this morning, I wanted to start with a couple of stories that Michael Card uses at the beginning of his wonderful book called Inexpressible, and I'd like to... I'd like to open with these stories this morning. I want to tell you about the night I killed Ted Morris. Tommy Pagage started his court-mandated appearance at the Trigg County High School Mother's uh, Mad Meeting with these trembling words. Standing in the back of the gym was Elizabeth Morris, Ted's grieving mother. In time, she would find it in herself not simply to forgive, but to unofficially adopt the young man who had collided with her son while driving drunk. Her husband, Frank, a part-time preacher and a driver for UPS, would baptize Tommy with his own hands. Years later, Tommy still called his new parents every day between 4 and 5 p.m. Though Tommy had no right to expect anything from them, Ted's parents opened the door of their life to Tommy. And in the process, everything changed. Samuel Cisse is the director of EduNations, a ministry that builds schools in remote villages in Sierra Leone, West Africa. When in 2014 Ebola broke out in the region, the ministry shifted from building schools to serving those who were suffering from the disease by providing food for families during the forced three-week quarantine. There were rumors of children dying not from the disease, but from the isolation period when many parents could not provide food. Earlier, one of the ministry workers named John had to be removed from his position after serious charges of misappropriation were proven to be true. Samuel had to enforce the decision and tell John he could no longer work with education. John's response was to hire a local witch doctor to pronounce a death curse on Samuel. But later, in the midst of the plague, a woman who lived in John's house inadvertently played with a child whose mother had just died from Ebola. John's entire household of 23 people was immediately placed under a three-week forced quarantine. A family that large would not survive without outside help, which was, by this point, the government was no longer able to provide. And when he heard the news, Samuel made providing food for John's family a priority for the ministry. And when John saw one of the workers from the ministry delivering care packages. He was so overcome that he nearly broke through the rope demarking his quarantined house. His family was sustained and thankfully no one else contracted Ebola. John wept publicly and asked the church to pray for him. Samuel's openness to care for the person who had cursed him and desired his death opened a door in John's life that would not otherwise, that otherwise could have remained forever closed, forgiving the murderer of your only son, feeding someone who has placed a death curse on you rather than seeking vengeance. This we would call love of neighbor, don't you think? And famously, Jesus had these words to say about that weighty idea. 
Someone asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so this morning, I don't think I'm overstating my case if I say that loving your neighbors matters more than just about anything else you do. It's that important. And this is why it seems to me when we get to the final two commandments of the 10, we find God by his own finger, Moses tells us, carving into tablets made of stone, not once, not twice, but four times in these last two commandments, these short two verses, he carves, God carves with his own finger this little three-letter word, this little three-letter Hebrew word for neighbor. And the count jumps to eight times when we add the representative English pronouns that we read in the verses that represent our neighbors. Listen to the ninth and 10th commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now I suppose we could add to that eight-fold list of neighbor references at least three more from what Jake so helpfully taught us last week, right? The sixth to the eighth commands. You shall not murder your neighbor. You shall not commit adultery with your neighbor. You shall not steal from your neighbor, right? It's implied. And clearly, God deeply cares about your neighbor. And so must you. The Apostle Paul writes to us in his letter to the Romans, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, these last two commands, the ninth and the tenth commandment, if you have a Lutheran friend, they would say these are the last three commandments, the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth. These two are very particular ways that we are to love our neighbors, by not bearing false witness and by not coveting what belongs to them. Um, to put it more positively, we are to unselfishly love our neighbors out of our integrity and out of our contentment. Now Carson has been using Martin Luther's four book pattern for praying through the 10 commandments as we, as we look at each command, the textbook, the hymn book, the journal, and a prayer book. So let's open up the textbook first and see what the ninth commandment has to teach us about our God, about what it means to love our neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So let's start with, what does it mean to bear false witness? It's kind of an odd way to put it. 
Um, so it's, it's courtroom language, right? Um, so clearly, you can't go to court and testify falsely against a neighbor, right? And most of us are like, yay, got this one. Not going to do that. Um, but you need to know, first of all, that neighbor is more inclusive, far more inclusive than just the folks next door. It's really implied here anyone you have dealings with is your neighbor. Um, but it has far more ramifications, far beyond just that technical sense of courtroom language, too. Um, Leviticus 19 connects it to broader truthfulness. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I, I am the Lord. The New Testament does the same thing in Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Martin Luther explains it this way. He calls it the eighth commandment. We call it the ninth. He says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not lie about, betray, or slander our neighbor, but excuse him, speak well of him, and put the best construction on everything regarding our neighbor. And at this point, it's starting to get a little more convicting, right? Because on the one hand, we are a people who are supposed to have put off all kinds of falsehood. We do not lie. We are a people who speak only truth with our neighbors. But what does that mean, never to lie? Like, totally never? Like, what, what about all those but whatabouts, right? What about those ethical dilemmas where someone busts into your house and they demand to know where your pastor is so they can do him in, right? <laughs> and if you don't tell them, they say they're going to shoot your dog. And so now you have an ethical dilemma. My dog or my pastor? What, what do I do? Right? My favorite ethicist has a helpful thought for us in these matters. He writes, the decision to act in a manner that breaks a command must be a last resort type of choice. That is, the situation has been thoroughly explored for other alternatives and third options, and no morally preferable alternative actions can possibly be substituted. Now, let me add to that my experience that not once in almost half a century of following Jesus have I found myself in a place where I needed to lie to protect the honor of his name, okay? Not once in almost half a century. Now, that may differ if you were living, say, in Nazi Germany or something, but we are living here and now, right? And that choice between lying or dishonoring my God is very, very rare for us. Now, the choice between lying and suffering or hardship, that's a little more common. I've been in a good number of spots where a little white lie could save me a good deal of trouble with my wife, for instance, right? Um, 
I ran across this interesting statistic. Duke professor Dan um, Arelli says, over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exam and before papers are due. Guess which relative most often dies? Grandma. I am not making this stuff up. Author John Ortberg cites another research study that has been shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19, 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at even higher risk. Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPA. The moral of all of this is, if you're a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to college. It'll kill you, especially if he or she is not a top drawer student, right? But the Message Bible sums it up really plainly, this little verse. No lies about your neighbor. No lies about your neighbor. But Luther says, not only are we not to speak falsely about our neighbor, but the ninth commandment implies that we must go the extra mile and speak well of them. Surely, surely though, this doesn't apply to online neighbors, does it? Like in blog comments and stuff like that? Surely that's a, an exception. You know, the Commandment implies much more than not testifying in court falsely, though it includes that surely, or even speaking falsely outside of court about our neighbors. It calls us to speak well of our neighbors, or to hold our tongue at least when we cannot attain to the standard of the New Testament in Ephesians 4. Let no corrupting or unedifying talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Only such as is good for building up. Only that that gives grace to those who hear. Really? Really. Even online. Now, why is this so important that it would make its way into the Ten Commandments? It's because of what it teaches us about our God. Right? He's truthful. More than that, he is truth. He cannot lie. He cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 says and talks about the hope of eternal life with which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Jesus talked, when he prayed to the Father, he said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And he claimed, Jesus claimed, to be the way, the truth, and the life, right? John would write, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Perhaps we should just pause and pull out the second of Luther's four-book outline for praying the Ten Commandments, the hymnal, and give thanks that our God is a God of truth. Can you imagine what it would be like to worship a God who lied to you? whom you couldn't trust to keep his word. Thanks be to God that he is truthful, that he keeps his word and cannot lie. 
But as a result of that, even our little white lies, the little ones, we call, call them white lies, they seem so very contrary to this God, and they misrepresent him terribly. We become like the Oregon-based ethics watchdog company that got fined $150,000 for unethically firing an employee. Or the Humane Society CEO who got let go because he was sexually harassing, dare we say, inhumanely treating employees at the Humane Society. We cannot represent the, the God of truth and speak falsehood. Even our little lies lead us to, to weave a culture of lies. Studies show that little lies commonly lead to bigger ones. And lying can be addictive. Moral philosopher Cicela Bach wrote, It is easy to tell a lie, but it's hard to tell only one. There's a survey that shows on average Americans tell four lies a day. Another study by the University of Massachusetts found that 60% of people can't go 10 minutes without lying. One USC psychologist determined that people are lied to by various sources about 200 times a day. See, this is the water in which we swim, right? But it is not to be us. It must not be be us. We are to be people who refuse to bear false witness against our neighbors because our God is a God of truth. And the alternative is pretty scary, right? Where lies come from? Jesus put it this way in John 8, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the ninth commandment is clear. Lying has concern for our neighbors in view. There always seems to be a neighbor who gets dinged by our lying, even when we don't know about it, even when we can't see it. Tim Keller tells the story of a man named Howard. He says, at 27 years old, Howard was given an opportunity to move from one large company to another for a modest increase in responsibility, but greater future opportunity. At the point of salary negotiations, Howard was asked to share his current salary with his prospective employer. Howard pumped up the figure by a mere 4%, a few thousand dollars. Of course, his thinking was that the higher they thought his salary was currently, the more they'd offer him. And he justified this lie because the prospective company offered two weeks less vacation a year than his current one. He just added the value of the benefit onto his salary figures. On the very slight, slim chance that he'd get caught, he had a plausible excuse as a result. The benefit outweighed the cost and risk. And by the way, he was pretty sure everyone did this sort of thing, so was there anything really wrong with it? So what about Howard? How could his small lie possibly have wider effects on neighbors? As Howard tells the story now, he shares that a real breakthrough in his thinking happened when he realized that the desire for just a little more money would so easily cause him to forsake his integrity. Why couldn't he just have been honest and shared that he thought the two weeks vacation he'd be sacrificing was worth an additional few thousand dollars? Why couldn't he just trust that God, who was providing the interview in the first place, would provide for the salary? 
And was he basing his interest in the job on the salary or the work God was giving him to do? He realized that the wider impact on society started with the recognition that with integrity sacrificed on the altar of money, the next lie would be easier. He realized that others who might observe him could be tempted to do the same. Everyone would trust one another a little less. And he realized that to work for the money instead of the value that the work itself might contribute would damage the culture of the company he was joining. So we must love our neighbors with our words, the integrity of our words. Now, I've already shown you that Martin Luther greatly broadened the scope of this command by his exclamation of it. But Luther pales in comparison to the Westminster Larger Confession. Question 144 in that confession. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? Buckle up. I'm going to read them to you. I'd have put them on slides, but I don't have enough slides. The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things. Whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, already receiving of good report, an unwillingness to admit an of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, slanderers, love and care of our own good name, and defending it when need requires, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. And there's more. Because the next question, question 145, are what are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors, as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, writing, appearing, and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked um, according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, I'm halfway through. So perhaps it's time for us to open the last of Luther's two remaining books, the journal and the prayer book, and just take stock of our lives for a moment in light of this powerful little command. And to aid us in a time of brief reflection and confession, I'll read a couple of select questions from Tim Challey's very provocative blog on the Ninth Commandment at the Gospel Coalition website. If you want to find it, you can find it there. So let's pray just for a moment, okay? And as you bow before your God, consider in what you say and what you read online, are you committed to promoting truth and to preserving and enhancing the reputation of others? Or are you willing to read rumors and innuendo or to spend time reading, writing, or sharing things that tarnish reputations? especially of other believers? Do you have a reputation for spreading rumors and lies? Do you find yourself drawn to reading material that's speculative or tainted with lies and half-truths? Do you avoid sites, feeds, and accounts that share speculative rumors or outright lies?
Is there any situation where you have bent the truth that you need, such that you need to make it right, confessing it to God and, if need be, to those you have deceived? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy upon us, we pray. Amen. Okay, let's look briefly at the last commandment, the 10th commandment. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Again, you hear it? Neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. Clearly, this command is a protection for our neighbors and a way for us to love them. And the meaning is pretty plain. Don't cover your neighbor's stuff or their wife or their husband. Um, clearly, just because it only says wife, it's not okay to covet your neighbor's husband. Right? That's why at the end he says, or anything that is your neighbor's, because he knows we look for loopholes. Anything that is your neighbor's. And it's not that all coveting is bad. It's interesting, the same language is used positively of the way a wife covets her husband in the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. The Psalms speak of God's word being more, more to be coveted than gold. So it's not the coveting that's necessarily the problem. It's what we are coveting or who. And the emphasis here again is on desiring things that belong to someone else that are out of bounds for us as believers as a result. The New Testament makes it plain that this kind of coveting is totally off limits for those who follow Jesus. In Ephesians it says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. It ought to be laughable that someone would accuse us of being covetous, right? So again, let's open up those first two of Luther's books in his way of praying through the Ten Commandments, the textbook and the hymnal, and let's see what this command teaches us about our God. So clearly, again, he loves our neighbors. This command is intended to protect them from the likes of us, right? It's, it's for our neighbor's protection. And you see the, that it's also for our good to protect us from falling into this way of living. You see, the fruit of covetousness is a hidden tragedy. Behind its empty promises, we find the following deep troubles. Look at the company that coveters keep in the pages of Scripture. Romans 1 says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So right there in the middle of envy and murder and haters of God, it's covetousness. And as a result, Ephesians says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So coveting is no small thing, right? It could bar you from the kingdom of Christ. Because coveting is false worship. You heard Paul there equate it with idolatry. 
because it is a looking for satisfaction, soul satisfaction, in all the wrong places. We don't need to be taught to do this, to look elsewhere other than God for our satisfaction. Blogger Jared Wilson writes, when my children were tiny, we had a couple of laws of raising children that were active in the house. The first law is that no item in the universe is more interesting than the one that a sibling is currently holding. God is to be our great satisfaction. Only he can deliver that promise, not what someone else is holding. Over and over again, the scriptures declare, our God satisfies, idols do not. Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 107, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul. Isaiah 55 says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, the Lord says, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. There's a long ago pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote a book on contentment that's kind of legendary. And in it he says, my brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That's not the reason. The reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that's capable of God himself. Many think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it's because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more, then they'd be content. That is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind. And then should think that the reason why he's not satisfied is because he's not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. But our God says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So this command, it's for our good and that of our neighbors. But our hearts regularly doubt this, that it's really for our good. Especially when we look over our neighbor's fence and into their garage and at their pool or their sunroom or even their spouse or the life that we watch them live. Kevin DeYoung has said it better than I could. He said, covetousness surfaces when we hear of a coworker's promotion, see a new car in the driveway next door, or reflect upon the seemingly perfect family at church. This enemy raises its evil head in a moment. We do not need to go looking for it or be schooled in it. Rather, it comes quite naturally. And though sin, this sin is a familiar acquaintance, it's no friend. It's an opportunistic and deadly foe which grips the heart, turns the affections, occupies the mind, and unravels a life. Where there was peace, it brings hostility. Where there was love, it stirs up division. And where there was contentment, it breeds complaint. Why is coveting so deadly, he says? Because it can never be satisfied. Coveting relentlessly craves more of this world, and a person's thoughts, affections, and heart occupied with the world will cease seeking heaven. It forsakes love for God and disposes one to hate their neighbor. Coveting pulls the heart down into the pit of self-seeking and the muck and mire of envy, slander, adultery, pride, dishonor, murder, thievery, and idolatry. Clearly, we need to be asking, how do we push back on this forbidden desire, right? 
And there are many weapons that Scripture gives us to deploy. I'll just mention two. The first has been said many ways. I call it the expulsive power of a greater affection. The expulsive power of a greater affection. As you fill your heart with a greater affection, it slowly expels room for the little one, the lesser affection. For instance, this is how a good marriage helps fight against the covetousness of adultery. The more your love for your spouse grows, the less enticing are the siren voices outside of your marriage. And so, too, the more we love God and trust his provision for us, the less enticing are those things that are out of bounds, that are outside of his will, like that which belongs to our neighbor. So to grow in love for Christ daily is vital to fighting the idolatry of covetousness. To grow in our love for Christ daily, every day, We must sit with our God and open his word and seek him and embrace his love for us. Just one simple way to do that is this week, um, I'm putting on our blog and it's on our Facebook page, Holy Week devotionals that follow this last week in the life of Jesus. It'll have the scripture readings for every day of the week. What he did on on Palm Sunday, what he did on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Wednesday through the week until Resurrection Sunday. You can walk with Jesus this week and reflect on the way that he loves you and let it grow. Let your love for him back grow in your heart. So the expulsive power of a greater affection is one thing, but the second thing is thankfulness as fuel for contentment. So we need to think more and differently about what we have in this life from the hand of God because every good and perfect gift that we have is from the Father of lights, we're told. And Scripture warns us of the deadly progression. In James, he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth as sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that progression is fueled by what James later calls a desire for what you do not have. John calls it the desires of the eyes. So you can't feed the monster of covetousness, right? Don't feed the beast. Stop cruising car lots and going to open houses if that's your vulnerability. Stop window shopping at Etsy and dreaming by means of southern living. Stop feeding the beast. Now, not that there's anything wrong with Etsy or or open houses for that matter. But covetousness becomes sin when it reduces thankfulness for what we do have by God's kindness because we are feeding a desire for what we do not have by God's wisdom. Instead of feeding the monster, we we must give thanks for what we do have. So when you get in that beater of a car and it starts, give thanks to God. The beater started. And when you arrive safely at your destination, give thanks to God. The beater arrived. It made it. When your sink leaks again or the ice maker quits working on the fridge, when the baby wakes you up because she's sleeping in your room because you don't have another extra room for a nursery, thank God for the sink. 
and the fridge and the hand-me-down bassinet. This is powerful medicine against covetousness. School psychologist Dr. Jeffrey Froh summarizes his research on the benefits of gratitude amongst, of all people, adolescents. He says, we found that grateful young adolescents, middle schoolers, age 11 to 13, compared to their less grateful counterparts, are happier, more optimistic, have better social support from friends and family, are more satisfied with their school, family, community, friends, and themselves, give more emotional support to others. They're physically healthier. They report fewer physical symptoms, such as headaches, stomachs, and runny noses. We found that grateful teens ages 14 to 19, compared to less grateful teens, are more satisfied with their lives, use their strengths to better their community, are more engaged in their schoolwork and hobbies, have higher grades, are less envious, depressed, and materialistic. This is good medicine, not just for middle schoolers and high schools, but for, for adults as well. We need this medicine, whether we know it or not, because this is the water, again, that we swim in here in our culture. You know, uh, on occasion, we go to the beach with our family, and we always, you know, you set up your camp, right? Your, your, I'm a tent guy. I've got a tent or an umbrella or something. And we got chairs, we got little wading pools, we got food for the seagulls. We got it all. It's right out there. And we set it up. And then we go out and we play in the surf. And what happens? The next thing we know, we're not in front of our umbrellas anymore. Somehow, we've drifted down the beach. And we're 100 feet, 100 yards down. We, who knew? We look up and they're way over there. This is the culture. This is the, way, this is the way covetousness works in our culture. You get caught and it drifts you along and all of a sudden you look up and you wonder, how did I get here? The, covet, the current of covetousness is pulling on you. Can you feel it? Are you aware of it? So again, let's open up our journal and our prayer book. And let's take a moment and let's inspect our lives together. And to do that, I'd like to go back to that catechism that I read from earlier. Question 147 says, what are the duties required in the 10th commandment? The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Just take a moment before God. Is that how you think about your neighbors? Are you rejoicing in the good that comes to them? The next question is, what are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? And the answer is, the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. As you reflect before God, does this describe you? And if it does, let's just take a moment and confess to the God who is inviting you to be satisfied deep down in your very soul in him supremely. Let's pray together just for a moment.
Oh, Lord, have mercy on us and help us to be so satisfied in you that the whisper of the evil one to long and lust and desire for that which we ought not falls on deaf ears. So grow our love for you that there's no room for this this dark love in our hearts. And may it grow a beautiful, beautiful, evident, tangible love for our neighbors, near and far. Have mercy on us, Christ. We pray in your name, amen. We'll close this portion of our service today with a celebration of the Lord's Supper. And as we do, let me read you the very next question in that same catechism. This is question 149. Is any man perfectly able to keep the commandments of God? And the answer is, no man is able, either of himself or by any grace received in this life, perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And so that means a couple of things for us. It means, one, um, when we come to this table, we come as undeserving sinners who have lied and coveted more times than we can remember and more times than we knew. And yet we come to the table of the one who is without sin. Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in coming to this table, there's a very real sense in which we are coming to Christ to remember him, to worship him, to obey him, even to commune with him, the perfect one who laid down his life for our sins so we do not have to bear them anymore. And the Lord's table at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus, who's walking in fellowship with him, that you are willing, even this morning, to confess your sin and come to Christ, the Christ that this table reminds us of, to find mercy and grace in your time of need. As you come to the table, I'd like to ask you to use the center aisle and the two wall aisles, and we'll use these two aisles to return to our seats. And then once you receive the elements, if you'll hold them at your seat, we'll take them all together as one, as God's people, after all have been served. So if you'll bow with me, I'll pray for us, and then the table will be open for you to approach. Lord, have mercy on us. These last two commandments are trouble. I know for my soul and for us all, and so that's why it's so good that after we stare into, into these um, indicators of our brokenness and our sinfulness, that we get to quickly run to the table, quickly run to our Savior, who gives grace greater than our sin by his own death on the cross, our substitute, our, our place taker, our sin bearer. And so as as we come now, Lord Jesus, know that we worship you. We hope in you. We know you are a God of truth who keeps these precious promises of mercy 
and forgiveness for all of our sins. The table's now open. You can approach as you will.